Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I just wanted to take a, a two-week focus on this passage from Paul, this week talking about Thanksgiving's power, and then next week talking about peace's power. So both from this passage in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Once a year, America celebrates Thanksgiving as a holiday. And I want you to focus on that phrase, once a year. Once a year, we gather around a Thanksgiving table. This year is a little bit different because perhaps you're not gathering around a Thanksgiving table with as many people as you ordinarily would have, or perhaps you would have made a trip somewhere and met with family, and maybe this year you've decided not to. But we think of Thanksgiving as a once a year tradition, and perhaps by doing so, we think that Thanksgiving is for once a year. And that's really tragic because as we look at this passage from Paul today, we note that Thanksgiving is not a once a year memory. It's not something that we do after we receive a gift and we say thank you and that's it. And our hearts are far from Thanksgiving. How many times have we thanked people, perhaps, for people who have cared for us and loved us and sacrificed for us and prayed for us, but yet at the first sign of conflict, thanksgiving is gone from our hearts? The question is, is really thanksgiving in our hearts? Do we understand it? Or is thanksgiving truly a, a sporadic, momentary, holiday idea that we do once really in, in very um, fleeting moments. In doing so, when we think of a heart of thankfulness, thanksgiving this way, we shortchange thanksgiving's power. Well, I'd like to talk about that very power from this passage in Philippians. Thanksgiving's power, I want to explain that it really does three essential things. It overcomes anxiety, persists, in all circumstances, and it encourages the community. And first, we'll look at how it overcomes anxiety. So we look at verse 6 again. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And the force of this first statement, this first verse, has to be understood with the way that Paul utilizes it grammatically. And it's so stark, so strong. He actually says, stop worrying about everything now. I mean, that's how it's meant to be read. Stop worrying about everything right now. Because Paul knows that it's the plague of our hearts. It corrupts our souls. Worry. Worry is something that uh, Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, he writes about 
in one of his chapters. Because it's something that we think of, well, yes, it's a sin, but it's not really that bad. Worry is something that everyone does, so is it really that bad? Paul is saying it is a sin. When you're anxious and when you're worried over the things of this world, over what's happening in your life, you are sinning against God. We can't try to shortchange that or make it sound better than it is. So because it's so pervasive, it's easy to downplay worry as that big of a deal in our lives. I want to consider this question, though, is why do we worry in the first place? How does anxiety come to our souls and impact us so easily? And the answer is that we see this all the way from Genesis moving on, is that there is a heart's desire within each one of us to control, control everything around us, specifically circumstances. And once different parts of our lives are outside of our control and circumstances are beyond our scope of understanding or the ability to put things in the right order, in the right place, especially as we deem it to be right, worry starts creeping in. So if you are a person who worries or is anxious about anything, you know that what is deeper beyond that worry is your control and the loss of it. And it, it really is indicative of a heart that is independent of God, which is why it is so deadly to us. When Adam and Eve first sinned, their sin of independence from God by taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they essentially are said to themselves and to each other, we don't need God. We don't need him in our lives. We can do things on our own. And so every single aspect of turning away from God has that framework. Psalm 14, 13 describes it this way. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So Paul picks up this very theme, this very text in Romans chapter 3. It's when God looks down and he sees the world, he sees a bunch of people, he sees us inherently saying, I can do this without you, God. And my plan, my strategies, what I have determined for myself is more adequate, is more rightful for me to be happy with life. And the further I can push you away from that, the better life will be for myself. I mean, that's essentially what the psalmist is saying. He, God looks down. To see if anyone understands, anyone seeks after him, but everyone's turned aside. Everyone's turned away. Consider now what you are most anxious over. And there are little things that we can be anxious over, and there are great, important, really critical things of our lives that we can be anxious over. And both do the same work in our hearts. It causes us to forget God and to not trust in him. So for those of you who ever have ordered an Amazon package and you know you go outside and you find that it's stolen. It happens those porch pirates, you know, they come and they steal it away and suddenly you get frustrated and anxious. You're waiting for this thing and you contact customer service and then 
they're not so responsive and you're frustrated by that and anxious. I mean, that's a really small thing. Maybe for those of you who were students once a long time ago in class, I know because I'm saying that because we're not in class anymore. It's all on Zoom, so you can hide better. But when you were in school, if you're a elementary school student or a, a high school student, and how often do you raise your hand and ask a question? Why don't you? Or if your teacher picks on you and says, yes, I want you to answer this question. And suddenly this gripping fear comes into your heart. Why? Because we don't want to look stupid. Because we have a reputation to protect. Seems not that important, but it still causes us so much worry. Maybe perhaps you're imagining someone is upset with you. That's a worry. Or perhaps moving forward, you're waiting on a, a COVID test and because someone you know has it and they've said, okay, now you need to be tested. And you go and you think, oh no, what am I going to do? One, you might be worried about your own health or the health of your loved ones. Maybe you're also thinking, but if I'm sick this way, then I have to tell all these people. Worry starts creeping in. And there are bigger ones. You've lost your job. How are you going to pay your bills? How are you... It, Suddenly you find out you're going to have a baby and it's your fourth one. And you're thinking, and I'm also 60 years old. <laughs> okay. Probably that won't happen unless you're Sarah, but <laughs> you know, it's how, how am I going to pay for this baby? How am I going to have another child bring this person into the world? We hear from, from George and from Carolyn and from all the different workers and hands and you hear about the children who literally have nothing to eat. Think about their worries, how they're so overwrought with, do I have something to eat for today? Maybe a parent of a special needs child or a mentally troubled child, and they've been caring for them as children. But something that I think for so many of us who are not in this circumstance, they're worried perhaps about what are they going to what is my child going to do when they're an adult? How are they going to care for themselves? And think about all these worries and so much more. How do you battle all of that? Those things that are ongoing day to day, moment by moment. And then there are those big futuristic worries and anxieties that just cover our souls. We have to think about Paul's words here, which is Paul's words are very proactive, not reactive. See, if you're waiting for the worry to come, you're already behind. You're already going to um, so easily succumb to that worry because you're waiting for circumstances to happen to you, and they always do. So Paul's not waiting for the worries to happen. He says, be proactive about it. And the way you're proactive about it is through prayer. We spent last week and the week before talking about prayer do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And you might think that second part is a reactive phrase, but it's actually proactive. That you're supposed to be doing this ongoing. And we see throughout scripture that prayer is something you regularly are doing, like Daniel, three times a day. You know, Daniel prayed three times a day in his room with the windows open. And then when that edict came from Nebuchadnezzar, it was, it wasn't as though Daniel started praying in the room three times a day. He was always doing that. 
And that prepared him for the moment that the edict came where he could still have peace, even though his life was being threatened. You look at scripture and you see how the the life of prayer is not one that is simply about reacting to, oh, you've heard about this happening in someone's life. We put it onto the Echo Prayer app, oh, these things, and and yes, let us pray over uh, those concerns that are happening now. But our hope, and I believe what Paul is saying here is that you make it a regular part of your life, the armor of God being sort of put on with the foundation of prayer, that is happening regularly. And because it's, because it's happening regularly, when something does occur in your life, it guards you from anxiety, from worry. And what Paul says is the way you truly battle anxiety is when you pray, make sure thanksgiving is undergirding that prayer. I'll explain a few reasons why. Because first, this uh, metaphor, and then I'll give you the reasons as to why thanksgiving needs to undergird that. We're all awaiting a vaccine that's going to combat COVID. I think we all want that so badly. We can't wait for the day that we go back to living our lives. And perhaps some of you have heard of different good initial reports from Pfizer and Moderna and maybe AstraZeneca about some of the efficacy rates of these vaccines that hopefully are coming down the pipe, 90% and above of efficacy, which is really great for a vaccine. Well, think of it this way. Thanksgiving in our prayer is a vaccine against worry. It protects you from the dreaded sin of anxiety because as much as COVID plagues the world in terms of, um, from as a virus scientifically and biologically, worry plagues your heart spiritually as much as COVID plagues you physically. And we need a vaccine. And Paul says you have one. It's called prayer with thanksgiving. Now, what does this exactly look like? First is prayer with thanksgiving is really thanksgiving for Jesus. When you are praying with thanksgiving, you're always praying and thanking God for his son. That's why we do it so regularly here at Wellspring, because we believe that it actually is protective. It guards our hearts. It keeps us focused. It helps us to remember what is most important. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 15. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all, all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now look at what Paul is saying there. He's saying, that knowing that Christ raised and we raised in him, that is the gospel right there, that Jesus, his work and our believing and trust, his initiatory work actually saves us. It brings us into his presence together for our sake. And so that as that grace extends more and more to ourselves and to others, it increases thanksgiving. The gospel increases our thanksgiving because it's, it's doing a renewing work and it's changing us and it's making us impact others. This is so essential to the thankful heart. We have to be regularly remembering that the gift 
of God's grace through his son is undeserved. And because there was such a great cost to the giver, there is an impact to that gift when we believe it. It increases thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is very cyclical and it builds on itself. The more you thank God for what Paul says as, is because of Romans 8.32, and listen to what Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If we really recognize that to be true, then if we understand it as a priceless gift, the gospel, it builds on itself and it creates more thanksgiving. The more you thank him, the more you remember what he's done, the more thankful your heart is. And it just, and then you thank him even more for the gospel. And then your heart becomes more thankful. And it, it really builds on itself like a snowball. It's, it's cyclical. And that is the first powerful means by which it frees us from worry. I mean, think of it this way. And I've shared a similar illustration. If you've been given a gift of $1 trillion by a generous benefactor, and then you get a $10,000 fine for something that shouldn't, uh, if you get that $10,000 fine of whatever it is, it shouldn't actually cause you to be so worried about it, right? But if you do worry about that $10,000 fine, even though you've received the $1 trillion gift from the generous benefactor, what does that say? about you towards that benefactor. What, is, what do you think the benefactor will think about you? Won't they think there's something really wrong with you? That you're not appreciating the gift? Do you see how when we are not thankful, it really expresses our view of God? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he's saying this you know, this chapter is all about giving, that we should be a cheerful giver. And the reason is because we've been given so much. And Paul's also saying that he's saying um, he's blessing the church in Macedonia because they've given to the Corinthian church, and he's trying to get the Corinthian church to be more of a giving church because they're not so giving. And he's saying, you know, this church has given so much to you. You need to grow in it. And how does he cause that to grow? He's pointing them to the cross. If you look at 1 Corinthians, you'll see how often he does that. 1 Corinthians 15 is the wondrous picture of Paul talking about the resurrection, the, the validity and power of the resurrection, the first importance of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He's saying, remember the gift. It's inexpressible. And when you remember what Jesus has done for you, then you can actually be thankful for any gift. When we're not thankful for Christ, we won't be thankful for so many other gifts. So thanksgiving for Jesus is one of the primary means by which we battle thanksgiving in prayer. Secondly is thanksgiving assumes God's goodness. There is no way the thankful heart can ever see in God anything but goodness. Thankfulness assumes God is good. Assumes God is good at all times. And the opposite of fighting for your control, which leads to worry, is relinquishing control to God's sovereign goodness. And that's possible only if you truly believe God is good. And as his child, you know 
God and you believe that God always does what is best for you through his goodness. And he has a purpose for that because you've given thanks for Jesus. And so we are recognizing that this thanksgiving is there and it just keeps you and it protects you. Koi Tenboom tells the story of when she and her sister were in prison and they were covered with fleas in their prison cell. And they had prayed for these fleas to leave that cell and God didn't answer. He didn't answer the prayer in the way in which they had wanted. But looking retrospectively, what they realized is that by that cell being and the two of them being so covered with fleas, the guards didn't come in and beat them because they didn't want to be surrounded by these fleas. And Corey Tenboom realized that through this really different way of protection, God was using even something that was so bad for their ultimate good. It takes spiritual eyes to see that, though. It takes believing God is good, believing he is trustworthy. That's why Joseph can say you know, to his brothers, with all the terrible things that they did to him, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But again, it takes that type of thankful heart that believes that God is always doing good for you. Once you leave that behind, then you will see that, and you will always think God is not so good. And what comes along with that? Worry, anxiety. And that's a burden. Another thing about Thanksgiving is that it leads to joy. Thanksgiving leads to joy. And that should make sense to all of us because you've been rescued. You've been saved. And so you're thankful. And it's always the thankful heart that is joyous. I have yet to find a person who is regularly thankful to be angry and morose and down. It just doesn't happen. There, it really is the building blocks. You see it, the gospel, then prayer in light of that with thanksgiving and joy exuding from all of that. And so the Paul's overflow of thankful joy to the church in Philippians who are supporting him. But where is Paul at this moment when he's writing this letter? Yes, that's right. He's in prison. He's in jail. Not a nice place, especially a Roman prison. And, you know, we, we who are perhaps, let's say you have to quarantine for two weeks. And I think a number of you have done that already. That's, I mean, it's not fun. It's okay though. You know, we're quarantining in our house with our food and our, you know, and our computers and our, you know, our home gyms and, you know, our, our videos and Netflix. And I mean, Paul is in prison for something. What did he do wrong? He preached the gospel and he has nothing to eat, barely anything. He can't be visited by anybody. There's no Zoom or any type of communication. All he can do is write letters. But is there any letter to, uh, of Paul's that is more filled with joy than the, the letter to the Philippians? This was a precious church to him. 
And he writes all of this. He says in, in Philippians 1, 3 to 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The thankfulness in this part for Christ and then the joy that is exuding apart from circumstances. Do you see how it is possible to have joy and thanksgiving in bad times? John Newton, you know, the writer of Amazing Grace, he says this, how happy are they who can resign all to him, see his hand in every dispensation and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. I love that last part. The faith that believes that God always chooses better for you than you could ever do for yourself. If you really believe that to be true, you will be freed from anxiety. You will be freed from worry. Trust me, brothers and sisters, I am preaching this to myself because I am an inherent, I I am the president of the worry club. (laughs) So I understand if you're saying, yeah, but you got to understand. No, I'm like that too, but we just have to believe this. We have to live in faith. It is, again, hard to find a worried, joyous person. I just haven't met that person. The joyous person is freed from worry. The worried person has no joy. I'm also amazed how worry and anxiety impacts us physically, doesn't it? I know there's high blood pressure. You know, there's your face literally wrinkles. Sometimes, you know, someone will say to me, Loved ones will say to me, stop, stop crinkling this area. <laughs> you know, this, I, I get more lines on my face. The lines are for, so often from frowning and worrying. You know, uh, we're hunched over. You, you can almost see your, your back curving because of worry. Our muscles, anyone have knots on their back? I do. <laughs> what does that come from? The tension of your, it's interesting how God has shaped and molded our bodies to physically reflect what's happening internally in our souls. But the joyous person, have you ever been inside a room and someone is just smiling? If you, if you see a room where someone is angry and then someone's smiling, it's dramatic the impact that that makes. I think I've shared this before, but I've, sometimes I, I would look in the mirror and see, is my mouth naturally curved up or down? <laughs> and uh, you just realize how just a smile can dramatically impact those around us, and a frown can do exactly the same. Thanksgiving leads to joy. It does. Just going to close quickly with these two last thoughts is that Thanksgiving persists in all circumstances. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, Philippians expresses that where Paul is giving thanks in prison. And Paul to the Thessalonians says, there's no exception. You don't have, he doesn't say you can be worried only uh, once in a while. He just says, no, give thanks in all circumstances. Because he knows that worry opens the door for Satan to come. 
and to deceive and to distract. We need to fight for thanksgiving. We need to do it so that we do it at all times. When we're embroiled with a hard conflict with a spouse, you have a, you have a choice to make. Am I going to only focus on what this person did, all the 10 things they do wrong, or am I going to forget all the blessings? That's a choice. That's a choice of either dependence on God or independence from God. And every time you're in a point of criticism and judgment and moving away from thankfulness and blessing is a choice that you're making for God or for yourself as an essentially as a practical atheist apart from God. Thanksgiving is most needed when our circumstances are most difficult. That's when you need to be pursuant of thanksgiving. It's not when things are well, but try to think of 10 reasons why you should be thankful in that moment. And I tell you, your heart will be changed. You will, you will see a transformation of your soul. So Paul, as he so often does, he tells us we need to be thankful and then he lives it out and he acts it out. So Thanksgiving persists in all circumstances. It guards us from anxiety. And then lastly, it encourages the community. It, it blesses all of us. And I shared that earlier about just that passage. But listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.15 as well. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Do you see how Thanksgiving must be all pervasive in the church. The more that Christ rules in our hearts, the gospel again, to which we are called to be one body, and that body then, as Christ is ruling in our hearts, is thankful. That's how it's supposed to be, the, the, that Jesus, Thanksgiving, and unity. And all, it's in every aspect of our lives, prayer, together, singing, teaching, correcting, Life together in our conversations, in all circumstances, everywhere, all times. Let's be thankful. So again, our passage, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The word Eucharist, if you've ever heard it, it is often used within the Catholic Church, but really, you know, very early on, it was used simply as a word to describe the bread that was used in communion. And the word Eucharist comes from this word, thankful or thanksgiving in Philippians. Eucharisto. Give thanks. Do you see that embedded into the very body of Christ shed for us, broken for us, is the word thanksgiving. And Paul says, the more you understand Christ and what he's done, the more you will be thankful. And it will impact every aspect of your life. Let me just close with this story. Thomas Chisholm was born in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866 in a log cabin, very poor. He became a Christian. He came to know the Lord at age 27, and he went into ministry at age 36. But he came down with some real physical difficulties, so much so so that he found that 
vocational pastoral ministry was not possible for him. And so he stopped. And then he moved to New Jersey. He opened up an insurance office. He lived really an ordinary life. The problem with Thomas Chisholm is that he was still sick, still had physical problems, still regular disabilities. But despite this, he knew God was still faithful to him. And as he read Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, he wrote this one hymn, and it's called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. And he simply could not hold back his heart of thanksgiving for everything that Jesus had done for him on that cross. And so despite the fact that he was poor, despite the fact that he had chronic illness, he wrote, God has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. And let me read to you one chorus, one verse of that hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Oh, I hope we are a people who no matter what we face in this world, and even if COVID should keep on going to the end of our days, we will say blessings all mine, 10,000 beside. To do so is to guard our hearts from anxiety. To do so is to remember all that Christ has done for us. And to never, ever doubt that God is faithful. He's always been good. I hope you believe it. We're going to close with a song that sings of that truth that says, thank you. Thank you. If you'll give me a moment, we're going to have to switch. But let's pray together. I ask that you think about a few ways in which the Lord has blessed you. Um, How has Jesus impacted your life through the cross of Christ? Have you given thanks to him? For, under, for all that he has done for you. What are the 10 different ways that God has reminded you that he is faithful to you? No matter what you're going through. I know that some of you have some real challenges and difficulties right now. You focus on that and you'll be overwrought with worry and it will keep you from ever seeing Christ. And I ask that you consider 10 different ways in which the Lord has blessed you. And I ask that you do that this week and share that with your family. Tell each other, no matter how hard it's been, remember all that Christ has done. We're going to sing about that right now as we remember all of Jesus' mercies to us, his kindness, his goodness. And I want to say that to him. I want to say thank you, Lord. Let's stand together.